Artist Collective podcast. This next one's about. Hello and welcome to the New York Artist Collective podcast. My name is Stephanie Manns. I am the host and co-producer of the New York Artist Collective, which normally is a podcast for musicians about music with artists on the show. But today is a little bit different. I have in the studio, in my virtual studio, I have Jill Schlesner. I always struggle with your last name, Jill. Can you not just take Jackie's last name? I shall. Just call me Je- Jill Lacalzi. That'll <laughs> be you. fine. Uh, you know, it's very, uh, it's a thorny last name for someone like you because anyone from Europe really wants to do justice to the German aspect. So you, you did it actually beautifully for a German speaker, basically right? Schlesinger. But we sort of consider ourselves Mayflower Jews and we've anglicized our names. And uh, so we're Schlesinger as if there were no CH. It's like very subversive. Mm-hmm. And my last name is Manns, is very German. So that's, that's my excuse. There you go. You knew it. Yeah. So this episode, we're going to be talking about planning ahead, uh, which, which makes sense in terms of your field. So Jill, you are a CBS news business analyst. You're host of a nationally syndicated radio show, Jill on Money. And if you are looking to rebrand, I think Jill's Funny Money might be a good one. Oh, I like that. That's good. Although it does sort of sound like I'm counterfeiting, right? Funny oh, Money. Oh, maybe. Yeah. That maybe, maybe for your next book, because your, your book was really funny, but we'll come on to that. You are the author of this wonderful book, uh, The Dumb Things Smart People Do With Their Money, podcast host of Jill on Money also, former Wall Street commodities trader, and financial advisor. You got it. You've been busy. Yeah, it's been a long winding road, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Indeed. But I love the book. Thank you so much, because you even signed it for me. I was so tickled by that. So thank you very much. I'm glad. Yeah. Well, you know the right people. I do. I do know the Do we right have to people. disclose our relationship? No. <laughs> sure. No, no, no. It's fine. Um, so uh, I, know you, I know your wife quite well. And she very kindly passed this on to me last year. I think it was February 2019. There you go. It's a, a, a lifetime ago. I mean, even three months ago feels like a lifetime. Last week feels like a lifetime. But so you released this wonderful book and it, I, I apologize because it took me a while to get around to it, but I'm so glad I read it. And I was not hesitant about reading a book about my financials or anything like that, but I sort of, I wasn't sure what it would entail. And I remember you came and, and did a talk that I attended and it was wonderful. It was really enjoyable, but there was sort of an oh shit moment that I had during that conversation. I think the metaphor you gave was think about your retirement as a lion on the other side of the door. It's always going to be there and it's coming. And I thought, oh no. And that absolutely terrified me. And I think another thing that I remember that you said during that conversation was the relationship that we have with money, the relationship that we inherit from our parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and how that informs our lives in general. And for me, this sort of fear of the line behind the door and not talking about it or thinking about it. It's like, for some people, like talking about money is like talking about sex. It's sort of that awkward, uncomfortable kind of conversation with people. But so let's let's take it back a step. Um, so let's talk about, if we can for a moment, the general state of the economy, what's happening. A pandemic has hit. I can't imagine that... You ever thought that we would see this sort of in your lifetime, you know, looking back on financial trends, we have had recessions, we've had big recessions, but a pandemic and a recession together has, is, is completely unprecedented. Yeah, I mean, we go back 100 years, right, to 1918, to the great influenza, and you start looking for clues then, except that you realize that, you know, you didn't have financial markets set up in the same way that they are now, and we didn't have social safety nets then. But, you know, The weird part about this period 
is that we keep saying it's unprecedented, but aspects of it are quite precedented. They have precedent. And the aspect, the, really the only thing you can control is sometimes the shit hits the fan in your, your life financially. It may not be a pandemic. It could be that you are a musician and you're riding your bike and you fall off your bike and now you can't play the guitar and now you cannot actually earn a living. And so there are various forms of crises that come up in our lives over and over. And there's kind of like a, a playbook for that. And the, the thing that is really difficult about this period is that everything was coming down around us all. And I would say that our, our sort of prehistoric lizard brains took over and it either caused people to panic and feel like, oh my God, I have to do something, or people who just kind of gave up, crawled into a hole and said, I can't do anything. And each of those reactions is very common. It really is. So that is kind of my my premise to, to tell you that this, you know, you're not crazy. This is the worst shrinking of the economy that we've seen since the Great Depression. It's in a weird way, a lot worse than the financial crisis, um, but it's better because we had very quick response by the government. Um, we have 30 million people who are receiving unemployment right now. We have a stock market that's making, you know, trying to make new all-time highs, even in the face of all of this. So there are a lot of cross currents. I would say, generally speaking, the economy looks like it bottomed in April and is sort of slowly crawling out of the hole. But as the pandemic goes and the spread of this virus goes, so too will go the economy. I just got a note from someone at work. I'm going to be on TV tomorrow morning. I'm going to talk about the jobs report. And we just found out that, for example, Nordstrom just laid off a bunch of people. Or that McDonald's said, you know what? We're not going to reopen everything the way we thought we were. So as you read headlines about the pace of openings or the spread of the virus, I think that's really what's dictating the economy more than anything else right now. Mm -hmm. And do you feel confident or positive about the way that we'll come out of this recession? Uh, you know, it's hard to feel positive. I interview a lot of people who have just gotten the shit kicked out of them in the last three months, you know, so it's hard to feel positive about that. But I'll give you an example. I interviewed a woman last night and she lives in Kansas City. She was laid off early in March. Her husband's self-employed. He's an electrician and they have a 12-year-old son. And so his hours were cut back pretty dramatically. She is still waiting to collect unemployment. She's tried to wind her way through the system. But, you know, right now, um, it, we just got a report that the June was the biggest month of unemployment benefits ever in the history of this country, like $100 billion paid out. And this woman still is waiting for her money. She just, the, the system is overwhelmed. And she has a smile on her face and she goes, well, I just hope this exposes that there are problems in our systems and we can fix them. Now, I feel like if she can be positive, I can be positive. And there, there hopefully will be aspects of this period that will bring us to a different place, whether that means it will have 
more people who have health insurance, where we see people who are in dangerous jobs get paid more money, or even the people who are taking care of our sick and elderly, you know, they should. I'm hopeful that they unionize. You know, uh, I think it's a, a real tragedy in this country that some of the people who are taking care of all these people who are so sick are barely making living wages themselves. So we're, I'm hopeful that something good comes out of it. I'm weirdly like this strange combination of someone who tends to be optimistic about um, the future and very worried about downside risk at the same time. So um, part of the reason I wrote the book is that I wanted people not to think that the markets would determine their fate, but that they themselves could determine their fate. And that none of this is really hard. It's, we're not talking about, you know, mega level of calculus. We're talking about trying to really separate emotions from some of these big decisions so that you can really forge ahead and do what's right for you and your family. And what I loved about your book is the, the personal examples that you bring in of people that have come to you with saying, Jill, can I have five minutes, which is not always five minutes at all, and ask for your advice. And it's they're always, they're always different people. And I think sort of, honestly, my perception going in was people that have money, you know, want to plan their money. And it's not necessarily about that. And there was one person that you spoke about and she, I think, had a very successful salon business and people were saying to her, you, you should expand and you should, you know, fr you know, franchise and all of this. And she was like, well, I don't want to because I'm comfortable. I earn enough money and I don't want the stress. I want to be with my family and all of this. And I think, you know, I think it was something like 75,000 a year, which is, I think is, is sort of the, the amount of money that we say is um, any more than that. And it's not going to make us that much more happy. Right. So the diminishing returns, happiness and money studies have shown it's anywhere between, you know, depending on where you live, 75, maybe it's 125 if you live in New York City. But it's hard to know yourself, especially when you're in the aspirational part of your career and your life. And what I think is important and one of the reasons that planning can really give you a lot of freedom is that it can help prioritize these things. I could say to you, hey, Steph, you know, tell me, you know, what you want in, you know, the next 10 years. And you give me a list of things. And I say, okay, here's what's realistic. Here's what's achievable. Here's what it would take. And it may be that you don't want to do that. You know, I'm trained as a certified financial planner, right? And so really, what does that mean? It means taking a holistic look at somebody and saying, let me listen to the story Steph tells me. Let me hear what she wants to do. And let me help her try to get where she wants to go. And I think like any professional, when I used to give advice and I was in that business full time, what you're trying to do is lay out options for people. If this is what you want to do, then this is what you're going to have to do, right? So if this is, if you say to me, I really want to buy an apartment in New York City, I want to make this much money, I want to live like this. And I might say to you, well, that will require you working until you're 70 years old. And you might turn around and say, 70, that's horrible. And I say, okay, when do you, what, what would it look like at 60? Well, at 60, you couldn't buy the apartment you'd want to buy. You'd stay in your rent-controlled apartment. You'd sock away a lot of money. And you'd have the ability to make different choices sooner because of the lifestyle you've chosen to lead. 
And this is actually a movement that's gained a lot of ground um, since the Great Recession. So within the last, say, five to eight years, it's called the FIRE movement, fi Financial Independence Retire Early. And the, the whole premise of that movement is when you're young and you can basically defer a lot of your joy, sock money away as much as you can, and then you can become financially independent, whether you retire early or not, that you can become financially independent and make different choices as you get older. Mm -hmm. But at the moment, you know, with the interest rates obviously not being very high with a recession, we don't anticipate them going up at any time soon. Is putting your money in your bank account the best idea or are there better ways that you can put it away and invest it? Well, it's hard because it depends what you would need your money for. I am known for espousing something called the, the big three. These are the three most important aspects of anyone's financial life. And number one is have six to 12 months of your living expenses in a bank. In a bank, I mean a bank, a, a checking account, a savings account, a money market, something safe. And something that's not going to grow and it's going to stink when interest rates are low. But when you have a pandemic or the next crisis or whatever that is, you need, you need to know that that money's there for you. You can't take risk with it. So number one of the big three, emergency reserve fund, and that's where it is. It's in a safe, boring account. Number two is pay down the outstanding debt that's, that, that's floating in your life. That could be credit card debt. It could be an auto loan. It could be student loan debt. You really want to attack that debt. And number three is to contribute to a retirement plan to the best of your ability. For people who are listening, if you're self-employed, maybe that's making a contribution into an IRA account or a Roth IRA. If you uh, are working for a big company and you've got a 401k and they have a match, then do that. And if you're really, you know, kind of kicking ass in your career and you are self-employed, there's lots of self-employment retirement plans you can put in place that can help you save way more than you could save in a 401k. So I think that those three things are really important and I always hammer on them. And you know, it's so funny stuff. It's like, when times are good, people roll their eyes at this advice. But when the pandemic hit, it was like everyone was wrapped. Like, oh my God, that's brilliant. Six to 12 months of expenses in the bank. Like, it's the same advice no matter what. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And, and some of the stuff in here, I'm like, oh, okay, I need to do that. And there was this, I, you know, one of the, the, the in fact, this, this sort of pink one at the top. This is my to-do list. I'm going to give myself a couple of weeks to do this. But you never know what's going to happen. And this is the point about financial planning. It's to plan for either the inevitable, which is death. Hmm. Oh, so much anxiety thinking about that, by the way. Thank you very much. But also right. maybe you die and you get hit by a bus tomorrow. You need to have a will. Mm -hmm. I think that was that was rule number one, have a will. But also have a list of all of these things, like have your a list of your bank account, your usernames, your passwords. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's, that's what I'm going to do this weekend. So thank you very much. That's an excellent thing to do. Now, I'll tell you the funny thing about that. I So I'm highly organized, and you know that my partner is also highly organized. Um, and it was interesting to kind of go through, um, uh, you know, come into a relationship uh, later in life, not when we were in our 20s, but in our late 30s. And, you know, each of us has certain um, habits about how we deal with that. And I think that it became even more important to us when we saw like what it was like to settle each of our fathers died uh, within the last 10 years or so and going through that process of someone's death who's close to you and really like 
digging down and seeing what a pain in the ass process it is to settle things up, you say to yourself, I'm never going to let that happen to anybody else. And so there are, um, there are lists of documents and where they stand. And, you know, it's a drag. Like I, I, someone at work totally teases me whenever I go in on the air and talk about this, uh, you know, like, oh, you just love to be a Debbie Downer. You love to talk about death. It's not that. It's that it's so nice to get it done. And then you really don't have to think about it. And also, I lay a heavy-duty guilt trip on people. As you know in the book, I do this because I think that one of the cruelest things that you can do to your heirs is to leave a hot mess that they have to clean up. And actually creating a will and putting this list of documents together and making people aware of what happens or what your wishes are, it's so easy to do. So why aren't you doing it? I don't know. I mean, I know if I die in Scotland... Or if I have an intention of going back to Scotland and my domicile is still Scotland, then technically I don't think it matters as much. Maybe. The law of Scotland sorts that out for you, I believe. I think if I die tomorrow, only my dogs are going to care. But we would care. We would all care who are part of this. But I think that what's interesting about that is that even if you are a foreign national and you're a resident here or vice versa, you know, my aunt is um, moved to Australia 45 years ago. She's still a U.S. citizen. So she but she's a resident of Australia. And there's a lot of hoops through which she has had to jump to make sure that things were managed properly. But, you know, I think that not dealing with it doesn't mean it's not a problem. Again, it's not going to be your problem. You know, my biggest fear is I live on, you know, I live on the West side. So, you know, where I, I, you know, I step off the curb and I get hit by the M57, boom, done, goodbye. And I just don't want Jackie to have to clean up after me. I want it to be easy. I want her to mourn forever. And I never want her to be happy with another person. (laughs) I thought that you would find that amusing. (laughs) I did. Thank you. And the M57 amused me too. Um, mm-hmm. I think that was in the book as well. Yeah, oh, yeah. Because it is my greatest fear. Yeah. It, that, that thing comes around the corner on 72nd Street and like has close to taken me out many times. Yeah, I probably should be scared of it. I do, I do jaywalk quite a lot. But I, I have this theory that traffic stops for me. That's, I, I would like to dive deeper into that, but uh, that's not the nature of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. Okay, so for a lot of our audience, let's bring it back to them. So for a lot of our audience, their income revolves around groups of people congregating together as artists and creatives, musicians, everyone on the sort of periphery of that. We're having to learn to handle our money in new ways, having to learn how to survive on the stimulus checks or not if they haven't come through, as you mentioned, for, for some people. And what that's going to look like in this sort of new world. And when this started happening, we thought this will be a few weeks of it. And now we're quite a few months in. We've got quite a few more months to go. We think we're going to have second waves of the virus. In many ways, I think for, for some industries, there's possibly no going back or there will be these new ways of working. And a lot of musicians have taken their music online. That's sort of been the only ways that, that they can make a living. Some of them are turning to different things. And in terms of thinking ahead and how they can plan and some of the things that they can do, um, you know, obviously stock it away. Are there any kind of other sort of lower risk options? I know we mentioned sort of index tracking in your book as well. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, look, if you're going to save for a long-term goal, then the best thing to do is to open an account with the cheapest fees possible, okay? So let's just pretend that you've got those big three things covered, and you're lucky enough that maybe you're not a full-time musician or maybe you're creative, but you've got a, an actual job that has benefits. And, you know, a lot of people have put together careers, but also having like one foot in a pink or white collar world and one foot in their creative world. And that allows them a lot of latitude, essentially financially. It's hard, right? But, you know, you're always, as someone said to me recently, like, you know, it's like really great to know I have health insurance, like especially amid a pandemic. So I think that for, if you're, if you're lucky to be in that position and you can put money into a retirement account, you would use um, a fund, a mutual fund, which is simply just a pooled investment that buys a bunch of stuff and you get a teeny tiny fraction of it. You buy a little bit along the way. And many of the cheapest options are things called index funds. They just track an index. So when a dope like me goes on the radio or goes on TV and says, oh, the Dow Jones Industrial Average, the S&P 500 Index, the NASDAQ Composite, those are indices that are made up of different companies. And buying an index fund is essentially hiring a company to go out and buy every single stock or bond or whatever it is inside of that stated index. And that's it. They don't try to find the best stock or the best bond. They just buy whatever's in the index. And because of that, because there's no research involved, what they're doing is they're keeping their costs very low. And so one of the reasons that I love index funds is that you don't have to bet on some man behind the curtain who knows better or some woman who says, I've got the magic formula. It's just an index. When the index goes up, you're going to make money. When the index goes down, you're going to lose money. But over the long term, stocks do tend to go up about 70% of the time. Sucks when they go down, you get really scared. But if you have some stocks, some bonds, some cash, and maybe some uh, other investments like a commodities fund or a real estate fund, you put it all together. And when one part of the portfolio zigs, another part zags. And together you get, hopefully, a return that is higher than the rate of inflation. And so just to step back, because, you know, I don't know if everyone who is participating this evening is the kind of person who kind of took, you know, corporate finance 101. I, I, I would just remind you that when, when you go out and are trying to make money in the investment world, there's essentially one goal, which is I'm investing for the long term. So my money grows more than the prices of things increase. So I'm trying to beat the rate of inflation. And when I take on, when I make an investment in any different kind of category, I have certain risk and a potential for certain reward. And the point of investing is to try to get your money to do the work for you so you don't have to do as much of your physical labor. You don't have to rely on your own income to drive your savings every year for the rest of your life, that your money will help work for you as well. So in general, if possible, it's great to be able to invest for the long term. But frankly, if you're watching this and you have $122,000 of student loan debt and the interest rate is 6%, there's no reason for you to try to invest. Just kick, just kick ass and try to pay down that outstanding loan. That's going to be a better way for you to try to approach your financial life and get that under control.
Yeah, I remember that was sort of quite early on in the book, and you're like, if you have debt, get rid of it before you even start thinking about that. Get rid of your yeah, debt. Yeah, it's and you know the nice way to think about it is that um, if you're not, a lot of people feel like they're missing out. And really what I would say is there's no investor I know who, and I know a lot of sort of big time, fancy ass people. If I said I could get you a guaranteed 6% return, they would hand me all their money in the world and say, great, give it to me. And that's what you're doing when you pay down a 6% student loan. You're getting a 6% guaranteed return with no risk. That makes sense. Yeah. That does indeed make sense. Um, do you think for a lot of people that with the stock market, the perception is, the sort of the big risk equals the big rewards. And I love the example that you gave about Warren Beatty. No, Buffett. I like Beatty better though. I, I, maybe in the movie Shampoo, he was investing. <laughs> Could be. Maybe. Warren Buffett. I don't know that many Warrens. That's why I mix it up. That's good. Anyway, so, and Warren Buffett um, put a bet towards a number of uh, hedge fund managers, was it? Yeah, he, he basically said he put a, uh, he, he was very sick of hearing people about their hedge funds. And he said, okay, I'll tell you what, I challenge any hedge fund to beat me over the course of a 10-year time, I think five or 10 years, I can't remember now, it's called The Bet. And he was going to buy the Standard & Poor's 500 index, and he was going to let the hedge fund manager pick any other hedge fund, any combination, do what they want. One guy took him up on it and lost, like got his ass handed to him. And I think that Warren Buffett, who is really one of the one kind of like one of the great investors and also has a wonderful way of speaking about this. The thing that I love about him is that, you know, he said to his heirs, when I die, and he's almost 90, uh, go buy the S&P 500 index, keep a little money in cash and go to sleep at night. That's that's what he says. He's one of the greatest investors in the world. And you know, for most of us, if you want to get involved in buying stocks, individual stocks, that's fine. You can try that, uh, but it, it's really hard to do it well. It takes time, it takes energy, and it takes patience. I, of course, have to just sort of put the warning out. You know, we hear so much about people, you know, going on Robinhood, the app that in, does investing, and it's really dangerous. It's, you know, it's really, um, it, it's like the gamification of investing is sort of this cool thing for many in financial services. And I think it's just not cool. I think this is really serious stuff. And I always, when people say I play the market, I, I mean, you play the races, you know, you go to the, you go bet on a horse, you go play craps, but this is your future and you have to take it seriously. Mm -hmm. People say they play Tinder as well. And I'm like, that's weird. Yeah, that's a whole nother world. Yeah, indeed. And just one maybe last final question. In terms of people kind of learning, this is all new to somebody who's just watching the podcast. What is a good place or a good resource maybe to, to go to to start and learn about this? Because it's like, there is, as you say, there are so many sort of of these, you know, gamification type investor funds. Um, and it can be really overwhelming mm. to kind of Google and figure out where to start. So um, I'll, I'll plug a few different things that like friends of mine, uh, my friend, Beth Kobliner, that's with a K, K-O-B-L-I-N-E. Oh, she blurbed me. That's right. So Beth um, wrote a book a while back called Get Your Financial Life Together. And she also, if you're a parent, she wrote a book about how to talk to your kids about money. She's great. She it writes beautifully. It's clean. It's clear. It's easy. Um, I also have a friend named Jack Otter, and he wrote a book called Worth It, Not Worth It. And it's almost like a picture book 
for adults, but it's about some of the beginning concepts about of managing money. So I think that's really a good place to, to also start. I think that for a lot of people, it is uh, learning to ba- to kind of get down to the basics. What is it that's freaking me out? Because you know, you know, as you know, in the book, I write a lot about emotions because I think that's really what really trips most of us up. None of this is actually hard. You know, I used to say to people like, I love statistics, but I'm a weirdo. I loved calculus because I'm a weirdo, but I don't really use that in my. I never really used that except when I was an options trader. So, I mean, most of this is really common sense. And the idea of saying, I'm putting my money to work because over the long term, I want it to work harder for as hard for me as I'm working for myself and that I can save and invest today and reap great benefits in the future, then that's, that's kind of an easy concept. But a lot of us who maybe are not trained in it and steeped in it, and I had a dad who was in the business, so it was kind of like dinner talk. I think that it can be really scary. And so I want people not to be so scared. It's not that scary. It's really not. I mean, not doing anything is scary. It reminds me of like the people who I used to say, they would say, oh, I'm not going to go get a mammogram. I'm scared. Well, isn't it a little scarier not to? Isn't that kind of a scarier alternative? And that's the big risk. It's the big bet that you don't have it. Yep. On that nice note. (laughs) On cancer and death, we will end the podcast. Thank you so much, Jill. (laughs) Jill, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you very much for for coming onto the podcast. Um, Well, I thank you. I think you're doing a great job here. And um, I, I also applaud all of the creative people out there. I have no creative outlet. I cook a little bit, but that's about it. So I am very jealous of people who can do that and um, and who actually really figure out how to incorporate it into their real lives. So it's a it's a very um, vibrant group, and we would be nothing without you, you musicians and you artists. So thank you for all you oh, do. Jill, thank you so much. Well, listen, enjoy July Fourth weekend, and I hope Independence Day must be kind of tinged with a little bit of hurt on your part. A little huh? bit. It always feels a bit weird to be the Brit <laughs> during these parties. <laughs> Well, I'm going to have a gin and tonic for for Independence Day. I'll be making sure we do that, okay? What is your favorite gin? I have many favorites. I have this botanist gin that I like quite a bit. I like that a lot. And I like the Plymouth, which is very British. That is a good one. I'm Mm -hmm. partial to a Hendrix myself. You like the cucumber. You're fruity. I do. I do like a cucumber. Mm -hmm. I think... That one, a good Gordon's is quite good. I think my mom got me onto that, unfortunately. She came over uh, to visit last year, I think, and she brought over a, a bottle of Gordon's from Duty Free. And she was like, oh, darling, darling, you're it. going to love Gordon's, darling. It's, you know what it, I love? You know what I love about the Brits? That you can have a gin and tonic in a can in a grocery store. That's like one of the greatest inventions ever. It's British class for you, isn't it? Best. <laughs> All right, Joe. Well, uh, happy fourth. And I would love to speak to you again soon. Take Absolutely. Care. Stay safe. New York Artist Collective podcast, this next one's about.